Our series is called Crooked Crowns. It's looking at how God's people asked for a king in the Old Testament, that all of those kings were a letdown. Uh, they were falling far short of the way God had been a king, including David, who often we lift up as a superhero, um, even though he is described as someone being a man after God's heart. Daniel, if you can go down just one slide, that'd be great. Uh, and today we're going to look at the grieving king and think a bit about how can we worship in our grief. Um, the aim of this series, as well as thinking about the idea of kings falling short, was that David is a worshipper as he goes through that uh, in different ways he writes the Psalms too. So, so yeah, some fun stuff. Today, just to get your interest, I know some of you are settling in for a bit of a comfortable one, we are going to look at one of the biggest contradictions in the Bible. Some of you are sat there going, what? There are no contradictions in the Bible. Today is a massive one. Massive, huge life-changing. We're going to look at that. Uh, some of you think I'm over-dramatizing it. You'll see, you'll see. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about grief and about the idea of tears. I'm going to give you a Greek word. I know that's just for me and others, but it's a helpful word, actually, uh, when we think about the way God looks at our tears uh, and looks at grief. But um, yeah, let me just pray, and then we're going to go through. There's quite a few bits of reading today, and if you're willing to read, it would help to break up the voices. So if you're willing to read, I'd love you to do that. But let me just pray as we come to God's words. Uh, Lord God, thank you for your word. I pray it would be helpful today. I pray it would be useful. I pray that your spirit will be moving, that the things you want me to say, I'd say clearly, if there are things that are unhelpful, remove them from my mind, uh, remove them from my mouth. But Lord, give us hearts to hear you today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story, uh, just before we start. Uh, and this is a story called The Boy, The Thing, and The Professor. Uh, and we think it's a true story, uh, although I'm not ever sure of anything on the internet. But once there was a professor, uh, a professor of divinity a theology professor of great renown. He was very, very important, and everywhere he went, people would bow, and this is in America, at a big American Christian university. Uh, he had a wife and a child. He was quite old himself, but he'd uh, found a wife quite late in life, and they had a small boy. And uh, their boy was someone that he loved, but this man was very busy and very respectable, and so they had a slightly struggling relationship. But the boy adored his dad. Now, in the boys' school, on the run-up to Christmas, they were making a Christmas present to give to a parent. And the boy decided to make a present for his dad. It was made out of clay that was going to be baked in an oven. And they were going to paint it and put glitter on it and make it look all kinds of colorful and beautiful. Now, the problem was the boy was rubbish at pottery. But he didn't care. And you couldn't tell what the thing was. But it was the boys and it was for his dad. And he made it and he cared for it and he made it and he cared for it and he made it and he cared for it and they fired it. And this thing was just a thing. Even the teacher said to the boy, what a nice thing you've made. It didn't look like anything at all. Anyway, the Christmas production came and the boy was excited because after the production, all the kids were going to give their things to their parents. The production finished, and uh, it was in front of all of the university, because uh, the childcare was on site. And the little boy grabbed his thing uh, and ran towards his dad. And as he ran towards his dad with this thing that he'd spent weeks making, he tripped and fell and launched the thing in the air, and it smashed to the ground at his father's feet. And he burst into tears, huge, wet, flowing tears. And the dad was a bit embarrassed because all the students were looking and it was his university. 
And he walked up to their son and he patted him on the head and said, it's nothing, it's not important. It's nothing, it's not important, it's just a small thing. And the boy's there just crying. And he says, shh, stop, stop crying, it's, it's, it's not a big thing. And then his wife, angry, indignant, snorting like a horse, strolled up, knelt down next to her boy, picked him up in her arms and said, it is, it's everything. It is important. And held him for minutes and minutes and minutes as the boy cried and then the cries, the, the tears ran out. And then she said, what can we do? What can we do? And the boy said, I don't know. It's all broken. She said, well, let's gather up the broken pieces and see what we can do. And they carefully swept up all the broken pieces and took them home. And with a mother's skill and a glue gun and a bit of tape, they fashioned out of the broken pieces the shape of a butterfly, which they stuck on a plate. And that plate became a special plate on their table. And the preacher, the university professor, was humbled because he'd forgotten that every tear is important and that beauty can be made from brokenness if we just give it a chance and give it some time. And that is the story of the boy, the thing, and the professor. Some of you are waiting for a joke. I'm not always funny. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to help us think. So we're going to talk today about grief. And some of you have been there. Some of you have been told. But I do think, especially for me as a dad, that story challenges me. The funny bit now is that I have raised my kids in that any time they hurt themselves, my response was to laugh. The idea being that if you made it seem funny, they might not be as upset. Uh, this normally works, uh, except when they're genuinely hurt with a broken arm. Or, 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 or something problematic. Uh, but, but trying to sort of say to people, shush, 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 it's fine, ha, ha, is often our response, isn't it? Crying is uncomfortable. What are we going to talk today about grief? Here we go. Let's just go through this together. And um, yeah, I guess the big tagline today is that tears can make the flowers grow. In the, in the film Les Mis, there's a song that says rain will make the flowers grow. And I want to try and say that tears can, not always, but tears can make the flowers grow. If we capture them, if we hold them, if we consider them important. Um, I don't know if we can open the back door. It's quite warm here, Tim, as well. So uh, that'd be great. Uh, no, here we go. Let's go through. Um, just really quickly, in 2011, uh, Slate, an online magazine, surveyed its readers about grief. They had 8,000 responses in a single week, which is the highest I've ever had. Uh, one third of people reported they'd experienced their loss eight or more years ago, but basically said the loss still felt exactly the same as then. Only 7% of mourners felt that it was completely true. They'd received adequate support from others. A significant theme emerged in how people felt their grief made others uncomfortable. People grieving felt others rapidly tired of their sad mood, and the support they did receive quickly waned under the expectation they would move on. Nearly 30% felt alone with their grief most of the time, and 13% said they felt alone in their grief all of the time. That's pretty hard, isn't it? Like, I want us as a church to be experts in grief. Uh, we as Christians are told to mourn with those who mourn. Uh, and so this is what I'm going to do. So let's go through really quickly. Um, a bit of background, though. Before we get to David grieving, we're going to get there in 2 Samuel 1. A bit of background. In 1 Samuel 26, uh, we're going to see, after another attempt um, at David's life, David had a chance. He snuck into a camp. Uh, he stole Saul's armor and spear. Uh, and I would love someone to come and read for us, if that's okay. 1 Samuel 26, 21 to 25. David basically stands at a distance, having stolen Saul's armor, saying, I could have killed you, Saul, but I spared your life. I could have killed you, but I spared your life. Um, here's what Saul says. Could someone read that for us, if that's okay? Uh, thank you, Joe. Yeah, thanks. 
1 Samuel 26, 21 to 25. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your servants come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord gave you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. Excellent, thank you. So, so they'd been fighting and fighting and fighting. Saul had kept trying to kill David. There are a couple of moments where David could have killed Saul. The really tricky bit for David is that God had promised him he was going to be king. And David is basically saying, I'm not going to do that by myself. God, if you're going to make me king, you make me king. Okay? God, if you make me king, you make me king. I'm not going to force it. This is good practical sense. If David had killed Saul and then gone, hey, everyone, God said I could be king, quite a lot of people might have gone, yeah, but you forced it. You made it happen. Uh, so David's key not to that. So Saul and David make up at this point. Um, interesting background. And, and I know some of you might be a bit sleepy after long weeks. Something I learned about David that you might not know, right? After this, David still doesn't trust Saul, even though Saul doesn't try and kill him. David goes and basically works for the Philistines. In like 27 and 28, he goes to this king Achish, and, and Achish is sort of renowned. And there's a bit where the Philistines are marching out to war, and they go, we don't want David here. David's going to cut our heads off, like when he changes team at half time. Uh, didn't know that about David. So he was a, a bit of a warrior mercenary as well for a little bit. Um, but they're friends. Some of you might go, why is this important? They're friends at this point, or at least they've made an alliance. We're now going to talk about the biggest contradiction in the Bible that I found. Okay, And if you're worried that I've gone heretic... You probably were worrying already, but um, we're going to find out. So let's just look at another bit of passage. Here we go. Um, I need a couple of people to read. I've tried to shorten it down. This is an account of Saul's death. Uh, I want to be really clear. This is quite graphic. Trigger warning. This is a graphic death scene. It's why we didn't read it out while the kids are in. Could someone come and read 1 Samuel 31, 1 to 6? Okay, and then there's a slightly longer passage. I need someone to read... 2 Samuel 1. And these books in the Hebrew Scriptures are together, they're not separated. It's the next chapter. But could someone come and read 1 Samuel 31, 1 to 6 to start with, please? Um, don't be shy. Don't be shy. Yeah, Tim, thank you. Uh, also, yeah, B, thank you. Yeah, no, one, no, go, 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 go. go yeah. uh, 1 Samuel 31, 1 to 6. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount, Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Thank you so much, B. Thank you. Uh, So you might go, that's not very graphic. We missed out the graphic bit. At the end, they cut off his head, pin him to a wall, and then set him on fire and put the ashes in a temple. Yeah. 
Just quickly with that, some of you uh, may have heard, especially in school, uh, the idea, well, God's people seem very barbaric. Why couldn't they have been better than all those around them? Why couldn't they have treated with care and respect the other nations? They lived in a time where they did that to each other with regularity. It's not quite like modern-day nations. It was a pretty barbaric place to live. Now, I'm not saying it justifies it, but we need to be careful applying our politics to a time. Some of you are reading ahead. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty, yeah, they pin his body to a wall. It's pretty mad. But the main bit, don't get distracted, is that's the account of of Saul's death. I've got some questions before we hear the second one. The second account's going to differ. Okay, and I want you to chat together. Why do the accounts differ? What might be some of the options? Okay, this is the only bit of work I can get to today, but it's quite fun. A bit of detective work. Could someone come and read? It's a slightly longer passage. 2 Samuel 1, 1 to 16. Could someone come and read? Yeah, Tim, thank you. Um, 2 Samuel 1, 1 to 16. Do follow along. It's just the next chapter. Um, yeah, just have a look. Why do the accounts differ? Here we go. Okay. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay honor to him. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the chariots and the drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you, an Amalekite? I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their cloths and tore them, clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the reports, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he said. He answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Okay, there's a lot of killing going on. It's like worse than Game of Thrones, which is awful. Um, So, the two accounts differ. Hmm. Does you see the differing? So here's some questions. Why do the accounts differ? What are the options? What are the options? Why they differ? Okay, give me some different options. Uh, which verses would you use as evidence to support your theory? Okay, a bit of detective work. It's like Bible Cluedo. It's like Cluedo, but with added Bible. So, who did it? How did they do it? Why did they do it? In what room did they do it? Have a little chat together. Why do the accounts differ? 
what might be some of the options? Even if you're not someone who kind of would call yourself a believer, um, this is quite fun to think about. Like, why do these accounts differ? What could be the options, okay? Um, I want crazy options, sensible options. Um, heretical options are welcome here at Cornerstone. Um, and we'll talk about it. So have a little chat. Why do they differ? What could have happened? What could be going on? Have a little chat together just for a couple of minutes. Chat together. Okay, okay, let's do this, let's do this, okay. So, it's tricky, it's tricky, uh, it's tricky. Nicholas at the back. You think the Amalekite is lying? You think the Amalekite is lying? That's the second guy, okay, uh, you think he's lying. Hands up if you also said the Amalekite is lying. Okay, a, a few, he's, he's making up a story. Okay, what evidence would you present, sir? with this filthy accusation about the Amalekites. Yeah? Yeah. Ooh. Okay, so some interesting things there. So, so one is a sort of viewpoint of the first battle as like an outside observer looking in. The second one, this suddenly unknown figure who's not mentioned in the first account, rocking up with it is Saul's crown and armor, sort of, but possibly, uh, possibly. Like, okay, yeah, some other options. Yeah, here we go. There are some other options. Oh, you can add to that one. Oh, you're speaking for the prosecution here. Yeah, okay. Oh, we're building a legal case. So Katie Willis has presented the fact that Israelites had a law which said they should look after uh, sojourners or aliens. Interestingly, some people say, say this Amalekite might have been um, an Israelite parent with an Amalekite, like a sort of a, a mixed um, kind of person. Uh, others say, not sure where he comes from, uh, but you're saying he should have been looked after, comes for a little reward? Okay, yeah, so he thinks... I'm safe. I'm going to get a reward. Okay. Okay. Interesting. It's, it's against the Amalekite at the moment. It's like Rev Amalekite on the mountain. Uh, anyone else? What else could be possibilities? Any possibilities? Any other possibilities? Yeah, Joe. Okay, interesting. So verse 1 of 2 Samuel 1 says David has returned from smashing the Amalekites. Uh, quick reminder, in case you feel sorry for the Amalekites, uh, these were the people that when God's people were coming out of Egypt and were basically weaponless and powerless on their way to hopefully find the promised land, the Amalekites attacked them on the road. That's what the Amalekites did. Uh, they are refugee bashers. Uh, doesn't mean they don't, I'm not saying they deserve doesn't mean they deserve what's happening in lots of ways, but that's why there's a bit of ill blood. Just You're learning so much stuff about church history. Look at you guys. Um, but David's returned from beating them, and then this other one comes, and he's like, da-da, king. Um, either maybe begging for his life, begging for rewards, possibly. Um, yeah. Uh, go. On the other hand, an alternative theory.
Oh, I love it. It's like you're the daughter of an Oxford professor of theology. Yes. It is more noble for him. He himself says something that he doesn't want to happen as he's dying. What does he say he doesn't want to happen? It's, it's my favorite line of a dying person ever. Be read it's All these uncircumcised fellows will come. I, I love that. So there is a sense that this is more noble, the way it's presented. Um, although falling on your sword, it's, it's a fairly ignoble end, if that's a word. Um, uh, possibly, yeah. yeah. And, and certainly some people have said, there's that expression, isn't there? Uh, victors write the history, that kind of, you know, you get. But, okay, possibly, yeah, yeah. Hello, go on. Yeah. No, it's true. So it's tricky. That yeah. 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 Well, so it's tricky. Yeah. 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 And certainly, maybe the Amalekite approached the scene after. Uh, if he was there, or um, we're not sure. Um, but you're right. I mean, and the really sad bit, I know I'm making sort of light of it, making it like a detective. The sad bit is that Jonathan, David's true friend, has died. Um, family are dead. Um, everything that God had promised us sort of come true. It's a, it's a tragedy. Okay. Um, some other possibilities? Did they write it down wrong? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? Um, for me, where you guys started, which is the Amalekites lying, is the bit that makes sense. Um, uh, it may be that he happened on it after. Um, what we know about Saul is he was desperately keen not to be killed by someone like an Amalekite. Um, the Amalekites have got history with God's people. Um, it is clear that he wants a reward. Uh, that's why he's doing it. And the Malachite just rocking up, kind of going, King David, I'm just here to honor you. No, no reward needed, King. This is not what's going on. David kills him. The cynic in me, and we want to be honest about this, would say, say David had arranged it. This is one way of getting rid of the evidence. But this is not the sort of response you'd expect. Also, David was away. Um, some commentators say as well that it might look harsh that he killed the messenger unless he started to realize there was deceit there. And also, if others began to say, David, you got an Amalekite to kill Saul so you could be king, Dave's whole reign becomes affected by that. David's big thing repeatedly was, if God's going to do it, God's going to do it. I'm not going to force myself to the throne. Does that make sense? So there you go. It's a bit of an interesting passage. You might go, it's not about grief, but it's fun to look at these things. And if someone says to you, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, you can go, yeah, let's look at one. Let's talk about it. And then you can go, but actually, um, what we find out later as well, if you keep reading down the passage, is that, that, that quite clearly um, the Amalekite has been false in his um, expressions. Okay? So, but what we're going to do today, just as we come to a finish, um, is talk a bit about David's response to grief. Um, one more reader, please. 2 Samuel um, 1. Um, could someone come and read for me? Just one more little bit. Is that okay? Is that right? Annabelle, thank you. 2 Samuel 1, uh, 11 to 17. Um, thank you. 
Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought the report, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down, and he died. For David said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up his, this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. Thank you. So David's response to grief, and we're going to do this fairly quickly, but um, I love that David took time to note the significance of the grief. They tear their clothes and they stop. I'm deeply worried, increasingly in culture, where we do these things called no-fuss burials. You might have heard about them. They're being advertised a lot on telly. Um, And I'm not judging people. I mean, the part of the problem is it's so expensive, doing end-of-life care and life burials. But I think it's really important we mark loss when it happens. I think it's really important because the person's life is significant and unique. I think also, from a pastoral perspective people that have a moment to come and confront death, it can be healthier for their grieving in the long run, even though that's really hard. Now, individually, as families, you can make decisions. I'm a big fan of saying, in a culture that often hides it away, we as Christians who have hope of of life beyond death and a God with us in death, we want to be able to face it with courage, with deep words of, I don't know what I can say, but I care. I want, I want us to take death seriously. I think David takes death seriously. Now, it is just for a day. It's like they had some sort of rules and regulations about fasting. Um, and I want to say, for those who are walking in grief, I've talked about this before at the front, the, the most helpful picture I've had is that your grief will stay the same size and life will grow around it. And so when you look at grief compared to life, it might seem smaller, but the minute you look at it again, it will be exactly the same. And I've talked a couple of weeks ago about the idea that grief is the price we pay for love, and so I don't want my grief to shrink. I also think we used to say to people, oh yeah, one day you'll be out of grief. I don't think you should journey in it, walk in it. Um, What I do know is that our God is the one who walks where the graves are. You know, that, that he's the one who walks people out of graves, like... I want us to be taking death seriously. I think David takes it seriously. I think we should stop. I think many of us who have been through grief have never had a chance to really stop. Because three weeks later, life has to continue. And I want to encourage you guys to to think about if you were rushed in grief, give yourself moments. My boy Callum is buried in Long Crennan Graveyard. I hate going there. It's painful. Uh, we go once a year for uh, his birthday and we talk as a family. Um, we grieve what could have been. We never knew him. I know some of you have grieved those that you knew and loved for years. But every time I'm in Long Crendon, I go and check if he's there and if it's all right. And it's hard and it hurts. And the bit I love is that the pain and the frustration at death reminds me that we were not created to die. We were made for something more. And so the more it bites... 
And the more it hurts, the more I remember that death is an imposter. That's why I feel it so strongly. We were made for eternity. In the garden, immortality wasn't in us. It was by being close to God. There's a tree, and God said, eat from the tree, and you'll live. Be in relationship with God. That's how you live. The same is true now. I want to encourage you. Having been at hospital on Friday, death is around us. But thanks be to God who has beaten the grave. There's a door in front of you. Come and live even though you die. That's the invitation. And so I want to encourage us to, to, to do the painful thing, if it's possible. Now, I know some of you in this room have every right at this point to go, you don't know the depth of my grief, and I don't. And I will say those words, I can't imagine what that's like. But I want to encourage us where we can to know that you can be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I'm God. Not that it will make the grief go away, but be still and know that I'm God. And also, if you were someone who was rushed out of grief by people telling you to be brave or to be strong, I want to encourage you to say you can stop and tear clothes and be angry. Does that make sense? Which is the second part as I come to a finish. David laments. Um, we haven't read it. He sort of sings a love song, but a song of sadness. I, I think nowadays, um, a bit like in the story I began with, we're often told, to, it's nothing. Be still. It's nothing. I want to encourage you. You can pray angry, snotty prayers to God. Jesus does it on the cross. David does it repeatedly. Uh, in the Psalms, in Psalm 13, he's God, God, you've left me, you've forsaken me, you've abandoned me. You can be honest with your feelings to God, even if they're untrue. And it would save my faith, being told I could pray like that. Our God is so big and so gracious that he is able to accept angry, upset prayers, saying, God, you were not there when I needed you. God, where were you? And I honestly think for many of us, we stop short of that. And we pray things like, dear God, I'm feeling this. Please help me not to feel that. And God would say, give it to me. Does that make sense? Um, last one. Here we go. Um, keep going. Keep going. What does God think in the face of grief and death? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. Many of you might have been in grieving. You've gone, what is God doing? And we get an amazing picture of Jesus stood at the grave of his friends, Lazarus. And he sees uh, Mary and Martha weeping. And sees the grief. And this is my favorite bit that I've been learning about. And I'm going to say it probably wrong because it's quite a tricky Greek word. Anthony's looking on interest as my Greek tutor. Enivrizimeto. Uh, no, no, so close. Eni, I know it looks like a B, but it's kind of a BV. Enivrimezeto. Uh, do you know what Jesus did in the face of death? He snorted like an angry horse. He was deeply troubled, your translation says. But he's angry at death, and he's angry at the cost of it, and he knows he's coming to beat it. But that means that when I'm angry in the face of death, I've got a God who's there with me. And he's not tapping my head going, it's nothing. It's nothing. He goes, now this is something. This is something. And he wept, and he grieved, and it deeply troubled him. But I love that that means that my God's with me when I'm in those places. I love that. At the moments I felt like he was not there, he was there with me, snorting like an angry horse. Which I know sounds like a funny picture, but it's important. That anger, that kind of thing. So what does God think of grief? He hates it. It's not how it was meant to be. And yet he then goes willingly to give us his life in the face of it. 